All right. Welcome to another episode of the Speed Change Repeat podcast today with Oren Etzioni. Hi, Oren. How are you doing? I'm good. It's a pleasure to be here, Jonathan. Yes. So um, I'm actually very glad that we're doing this. Um, I'm pretty excited for the conversation. You're a very, very interesting person that is working on a um, on some some very interesting topics. So um, you know, kind of as the first thing, as we always do on our podcast, is obviously giving you as the guest uh, the stage. You know, to kind of tell us and our audience a little bit about yourself. You know, where are you coming from? Just kind of in a storytelling way through the different stages in your um, career and uh, how you ended up basically where you are today. Well, that could be a rather long story because I'm uh, I'm old. I'm fifty-seven, uh, but I, I'll tell you the uh, short highlights, and then maybe we can uh, delve in. I uh, became interested in AI in high school. I read the book uh, Goodlesher Bach, uh, which uh, at the time was very popular and uh, got me excited about AI. I started writing code in Lisp. Uh, which was for many years, right, the, the lingua franca. Those of you not familiar with Lisp, uh, Java inherited a lot of its features like garbage collection and so on from Lisp, but Lisp had a kind of idiosyncratic uh, syntax, which uh, AI folks loved. So anyway, Lisp was actually my first um, uh, serious programming language. And then I went to study AI in college and then in graduate school, I got a PhD. I became a professor at the University of Washington, and that was back in 1991. And I uh, did research in machine learning, natural language processing, uh, web search uh, agents, uh, if people are familiar with that idea. And um, I also did some startups having to do with AI. Uh, the different startups used aspects of uh, AI to help uh, consumers often get a better price or more information about something they were buying, like electronics or airfares. And then about seven years ago, the late uh, Paul Allen's team reached out to me to launch uh, the Allen Institute for AI. So we did that in 2014. And it's been uh, about seven years. We're now more than 120 people. We have uh, our main offices in Seattle. We have one in Tel Aviv, Israel. We have one in Irvine, California. We're, uh, we're growing more than 120 people, uh, PhDs, engineers, uh, and others. And we even have our own uh, startup incubator, which is uh, also uh, maybe has 100 people at this point, all kinds of uh, exciting ideas. And our mission is AI for the common good. So whether it's on the nonprofit arm or the incubator, we find different ways to use AI to have a positive impact on the world. Yeah, so there's obviously a lot that we can talk about. But, um, you know, uh, before we jump into the um, kind of, you know, the, the, the entire thing about the Allen Institute, let's maybe dive a little bit about your, um, you know, your time before that. So, you know, if, 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 you, if you would break it down. So obviously, you've, you've, you've been in the field uh, for a long time, uh, first in academia, but then also you said like you've been involved through startups, etc., how would you say, like, from your perspective, you know, observing the development, obviously, um, of, of, of the AI field, you know, and then, then basically to the hype that it went into and now, let's say, it being kind of the, you know, the non, non plus ultra within every, within every activity, both in the corporate but also in the academic world, you know, how would you, from your perspective, you know, describe the development throughout the years and, and basically how it got to that stage that it is today? 
Uh, wow, what a great uh, a great question. Uh, I can see that my challenge with all your questions, Jonathan, is going to be to keep my answers reasonably concise because I could literally give a seminar series, not just one lecture, on uh, on the history of AI. So uh, when I joined the field. Um, uh, there are a lot of question marks. This was after an AI winter where people were uh, very skeptical about AI's performance. And frankly, the experimental standards weren't always rigorous. Sometimes people would show you fun examples. They were uh, cherry picked uh, and uh, it wasn't necessarily compelling. So a big deal at the time was getting AI to be a rigorous uh, discipline, which uh, has happened. And a second huge uh, change was to increase the focus on uh, machine learning and uh, statistical methods, data science, uh, et cetera. Uh, now, uh, in retrospect, of course, that was the way to go. But at the time, there was a lot of debates. There are communities in AI that come from the logical uh, tradition, uh, actually, especially in Europe, where they were focused on uh, rigorous formalisms and on proving results and not always on uh, efficacy on measurable tasks. And so um, the field really changed over the 90s to increasingly focus on machine learning and data, and data, as I said, and experimental rigor. And then in uh, 2012, there was another big shift, which was the shift to focus on deep learning, which really can be viewed as a continuation uh, of, of the previous trend, but now with uh, the uh, faster hardware and GPUs and algorithmic improvements with those methods, uh, it became very much of a deep learning field. And now um, most work in academic AI, certainly in the conferences that I uh, uh, follow, are ones that utilize deep learning techniques to accomplish AI tasks or advance improve deep learning techniques in various ways. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you mentioned deep learning and uh, I, I remember not long to go, um, or actually, I mean, it's been two, three years so in the technology world, that's actually a, a lot of time, but uh, I, I read that there was a comment by uh, Jeffrey Hinton who said like, that probably a lot of, uh, a lot of the, um, you know, future challenges or, you know, things that are supposed to be discovered are, uh, you know, Kind of a dead end for deep learning so basically kind of that there most probably needs to be some sort of new you know approach to be taking for a lot of things so um what what, what is your opinion and, and let's say also reflecting on obviously the work that you've seen in academia but also now independently you know with the allen uh, allen institute so what, what, what's your opinion to that well there's a very famous uh saying by uh arthur c clark right the science fiction writer that uh, sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And uh, I wrote an article that appeared in Wired a while back uh, entitled uh, Deep Learning Isn't Magic, alluding exactly to that point. At the time, people really felt it uh, to be magical, whereas in fact, it's a class of machine learning techniques uh, with particularly uh, strong properties when you have a lot of data, when you have nonlinear models. And um, the uh, success has been uh, very impressive, but also very limited. And so is a huge credit uh, to Jeff Hinton, who's the uh, inventor of many of these techniques and some of the most successful ones, 
but he's seeing beyond that and saying, uh, we're going to have another paradigm shift. And perhaps a lot of these things are going to be forgotten or changed. And I very much uh, agree with that. We've, we've seen that uh, deep learning, uh, when given large amounts of labeled data, can be incredibly successful in narrow fields, whether it's playing Go or you know, video games or even analyzing radiological images uh, that a doctor takes. But uh, it's still very far from uh, human level intelligence both in terms of its uh, data efficiency and in terms of its uh, scope and generality. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I already have a question for that we can dive a little bit deeper into into kind of you know hype and, and reality to that. So, but let, let's 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 keep that for a little bit later. Let's uh, jump a little bit into um, you know uh, you know maybe it would be also interesting to if, if you could share some of your um, you know stories between. Uh, in regards to the startups that you have been involved in, and you know, kind of, I, I think that also is 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 more or less, you know, the the, the pre story that uh, uh, because I know that one of your startups was acquired by Microsoft, that that might be a factor of why you actually got involved into the Allen Institute. But that's just a, a, a hint from my side. But uh, you know, what's kind of the deal with that? The the startups uh, I've, I've used have generally looked at a consumer problem, particularly around uh, shopping, and asked how can we use AI to make things better? And my most successful one, uh, which initially was actually based on an academic paper in uh, 2003 that appeared in the KDD uh, conference, the conference is still around today, and it was entitled something at, like, to buy or not to buy, that is the question. And the problem we were looking at was, uh, when's the right time to buy your airfare? Of course, this is long before COVID, given how uh, airline prices fluctuate. They go way up and way down. And if you buy it on the wrong day or even the wrong hour, that can make a difference of uh, hundreds of dollars. And so we uh, look to develop uh, predictive models. Uh, and again, this is very early on, back in 2003, 2004, to tell you when's the best time to buy your ticket. And uh, the to buy or not to buy, right? Our system was called Hamlet, right? Uh, with a, you know, to be or not to be, that is the question, to buy or not to buy. And eventually it became a company called uh, Faircast. And long before uh, big data was uh, super popular, we reached uh, more than a trillion uh, labeled data points. And ultimately, as you said, uh, yeah, Microsoft uh, acquired the company and it became part of uh, Bing uh, Travel and a lot of uh, twists and turns uh, in that story and how Google responded and so on. But I, um, uh, I, I just founded that company and had kind of the technical vision. There was a set of very talented people who uh, managed it from Hugh Crean, who was the CEO, to Jay Bartow, who was the CTO and so on. And I went back to uh, the university after the company was acquired in 2008. And there is no connection uh, to um, uh, then uh, Paul Allen and uh, son, except for the fact that, of course, companies like Microsoft and Amazon and earlier Boeing, right, these major companies are uh, hugely part of the Seattle ecosystem. So uh, yeah, Seattle is still kind of, a, in a funny way, uh, a small world. And so uh, perhaps it's not surprising that uh, I'm now having another Microsoft-related uh, adventure. 
Yeah, absolutely. But it's it's still interesting. I mean, you know, if if if, if it's if it's been a success, right? So uh, Microsoft acquiring it, and 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 you going back to academia. What you know? Why? Uh, I mean, you you. I'm obviously you know you still being in research active today now through through the Allen Institute obviously proves that you you know that is really kind of where your heart lies you know to be to be at the cutting edge uh, is, is that the reason why you basically you know I'm, I'm trying to make the the shift now towards the Allen Institute you know you going back to you know back to academia how did that shift basically happen towards the Allen Institute sure well I I've really learned, right, that there's so many different paths we can take through life. And I have a lot of respect for uh, things that people do. Uh, I grew up, you know, very technically, as I mentioned, you know, Gertle Escherbach, I majored in computer science. But over time, I realized that um, there are many non-technical disciplines, whether it's business development or marketing or program management, they all uh, have uh, some, some tremendous value. Uh, for me, I've always valued um, two things. One is uh, intellectual freedom, where, of course, a university or a research institute has that a lot. And the second one is the ability to have an impact. Uh, and uh, so for me, that was very much about academia. But around the time that uh, Paul Allen's folks reached out to me, I started after more than 25 years as a professor kind of saying to myself, ah, you know, the field is moving slowly. We're publishing these conference papers, but they're so incremental. How can we do something bigger? You know, it's getting older, uh, you know, turn 50, getting more impatient, right? I want us to make progress faster. And the really appealing thing, of course, uh, with Paul Allen was both his uh, resources, but also his vision. He wasn't interested in publishing three more papers or 100 more papers either. He wanted to have uh, an outsized impact. And again, when you're the person who co-founded Microsoft, uh, you're used to thinking big. And that was definitely his thing. So uh, when people asked me back in 2014, why did I join uh, or help to create the Institute? The answer was that the sky's the limit. We can really do uh, anything. And certainly over the last seven years, um, I do feel like we've had an outsized impact. Probably our most impactful pro uh, project is a project called uh, Semantic Scholar, which is a free search engine for uh, scientific papers. It's actually a lot more than a, a search engine, but uh, it's, been, it's been a great journey uh, there. And we could talk more about that as well. Absolutely. If, if you're saying, you know, it's, 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 it's really about you know, looking bigger and, and, and beyond the, the abilities that one has as an academic, you know, in the academic world and, uh, you know, the mission or kind of the statement that also obviously I'm, I'm seeing now in the background, AI for the common good. How, what, what is kind of the story now behind the Allen Institute? Obviously, you know, I, AI for a common good is, uh, is a great statement. But, it, it, you know, as, as, as the, the, the name already says, Allen Institute, how does it differ actually towards, you know, you guys being kind of, a, you know, an independent research institute, you know, that is obviously nonprofit towards basically, you know, the, the academic world. I mean, you guys are still obviously doing research, writing papers, you know, what is, what is different besides the inevitable amount of resources that you guys have? compared to, let's say, one being a chair of an academic? So there are some key differences. We do view ourselves very much as part of the academic world in the research arm. 
at the same time, we're very cognizant that having an impact can happen through a startup, through a technology. And so one big difference in the university is we do work, uh, collaborate closely with our incubator, which we've spun out quite a few startups. University have done that as well, but somehow that's not always considered on par of the mission of research and education. Second difference is there's a, a number of activities in universities that are very worthwhile, like uh, teaching students and so on, but we don't do that. We're not a teaching uh, place. And also we're fully funded. And so um, uh, writing grants is the bane of a professor's existence and uh, people at AI2 don't have to, to do that. So uh, they have the ability to focus a lot more on, on the research. And then another really important difference is there's a saying, if you wanna go fast, go alone. If you wanna go far, go together. And so often we try to take our research uh, further. So beyond a single paper, even a group of papers on a particular topic, we try to build systems that maybe we open source uh, that have research and engineering involved. So for example, we built a system called uh, Allen NLP, which is an open source uh, system for um, library for um, natural language processing based on deep learning. It's a very modern library. It's particularly good for if you're engaged in, uh, in research into these areas. Uh, we've also built uh, one called Allen Act, which is for research on embodied systems. And uh, we've, we've done a number of things like that where we take the research, but go further with it because we're not sitting there with a clock of, hey, the student needs to graduate, or I've got to get this paper uh, published. We measure ourselves not by how many papers we publish, but by what uh, impact we make. So for example, Semantic Scholar, there have been more than 25 papers published and we've open source components of it. But what we're most proud of is the number of users. We've reached now more than 8 million users uh, per month and, uh, and continuing to grow. We cover all academic disciplines. And you can only do that if you have not just more resources, but also that strong collaboration between research and engineering and patience, right? Uh, to be able to build something. Uh, Semantic Scholar is a five-year-old project. Yeah, so I, I guess that's also, we're gonna talk about that a little bit later. Um, somehow probably the bridge that, that or, or the reason why you guys have been going uh, about the AI2 incubator. Um, but uh, let, let's talk a little bit about that later. So, you know, let's, let's, let's maybe look back a little bit. So you, you've been, you've been doing this now for seven years, uh, roundabout. Um, let, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about more about the, you know, the achievements, the learnings, you know, pivotal moments, um, in, in these seven years, if you could, you know, just like some of your highlights, highlights, I'm sure you've reflected on them many times, but you know, which, which are, uh, worth mentioning here? Well, uh, again, uh, I wish you could come visit us, which is, of course is hard uh, time of COVID and distances, but we really have a, a wall actually dedicated to some of the highlights. But let me mention uh, one that we haven't talked about yet, which is really a, a fascinating one. Um, Paul Allen, the late Paul Allen was really interested in the question of how do you get a computer to read a textbook and answer the questions in the in the back of the book, right? Uh, something that every human student, even a 10-year-old, right, can do for the appropriate uh, textbooks. 
And that turns out to be a very difficult problem. And so we, to make progress on it gradually, uh, redefined that into looking at standardized tests, like the kind of tests that they have uh, in the US and I'm sure in Europe and elsewhere, where students have to take an exam in science, you know, in fourth grade, sixth grade, eighth grade to demonstrate their progress. And we said, what's nice about this is we have a quantifiable metric, right? We can collect questions like that, give ones to the computer that it has not seen before and measure its progress over time. And these questions can be quite complex to state. They can involve uh, diagrams uh, and uh, charts and figures. Uh, and um, it really is a substantial challenge for the machine. And when we started the, these projects back in 2014, uh, the machine was not doing much better than random on multiple choice questions. It was getting something like 30%. And over time, uh, we were able to increase performance until um, in, uh, gosh, uh, when, when was it? In uh, 2019, right? So uh, a couple of years ago, uh, we had a full page article in the New York Times because we were able to achieve uh, human level performance, at least on the textual part of the exam. So on the what's called the regents test, science test at the eighth grade level and even the 12th grade level, we were achieving human level uh, performance, which was uh, a very uh, impressive growth over, over years. And we learned a lot about what's required uh, in terms of question answering, in terms of uh, world knowledge. So that was a huge highlight for us uh, to spend five years uh, doing that. Yeah, so I mean, that, that I, there, there's a, there's obviously a lot of things that you can that you can share, and uh, I hope uh, let's say if, if the, uh, the pandemic is going to be over, you know, and, and and one time we can travel travel again, you know, and and, and me being around uh, in, in the U.S. or so, and, and maybe near Seattle. Uh, I mean, I've been there. I told you uh, many times. Uh, Would be great to visit your office and look at look at all these highlights. I'm sure there's uh, way more that you can uh, talk about. And uh, so, I mean, when I researched uh, research about the institute and, and and the work, I obviously also looked at uh, papers about things that that, that are uh, public. And then I also stumbled uh, across, you know, the, the the incubator that you guys have been doing now for for a while, um, which is uh, I'm not sure how old it is. It's probably less than two years, right? Well, actually, it's had several generations. So we had the incubator okay. from day one, 2014, but we've Uh, it's really grown a lot uh, more in the in the last couple of years. Yes. All right. So let you know, guide me through the thought behind that. You know, obviously, it makes. I mean, it's it's pretty logical that um, you know that if if you work on things where you measure success based on obviously the impact that you have based on, for example, number of users in regards to products that are. You know, being created in, in in the process of, for example, writing a paper, etc. You know, it, it obviously makes sense that pretty quickly you 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 jump to the conclusion or you, you you start to see opportunities that hey, this is actually something that could be potentially you know ventured out and 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 you know actually become an, a business. So, but but you know, I, I don't that that's just an assumption from my side. But you know, what what's kind of the story behind that? So, how how did this actually start? So there are two key motivations. The first one is, of course, uh, the late Paul Allen uh, uh, was an entrepreneur, right? So for him, it was very natural to have that be part of the ways that we uh, try to make an impact. 
that was an important point. And secondly, launching an institute where there's you know Google and Amazon and Microsoft and universities, there's always the question of how do you attract some of the smartest people over? And one of the unique um, attractions for AI2, we realized, was the fact that you could work on something and rather seamlessly uh, transfer it into um, a technology that leads to a startup. You can do that at universities, but universities, again, have a lot of ambivalence and, and complexity there, and, and we don't. Uh, and so, for example, our most successful startup, which was uh, a company called Xnor.ai that was bought by Apple for a reported uh, $200 million, so big success for uh, everyone involved, uh, started out as a research project at AI2, and the people who founded it uh, for a long time, uh, the company was actually housed at AI2, and they were sharing their time seamlessly between the two. They would literally walk across the hall uh, to keep working on, on their startup. And eventually, they took over our entire ping pong room uh, with all, all their cool uh, stuff. And, and eventually, they grew. They grew to more than 80 people, and they had to uh, leave and, and find their own space. So um, the summary is it's both about impact and also about making it uh, the most attractive environment uh, for uh, smart people to have that impact. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I, I would I would actually say that obviously, you know, you guys have the advantage of you know already having, let's say, smart people being involved. So I mean, smart people attract smart people. That's one thing. But obviously, competition is very high, you know, especially in the West Coast uh, when it comes to that. And and you know, you guys being Seattle and then having the Silicon Valley, obviously. Um, yeah, I, it definitely makes sense, but that, that is, that's actually a very interesting factor. So I, I, I saw that, that you, so there's a fund basically that was collected in order to, to finance that. Right. And, and that, that actually comes to the question, you know, how is something like that? And, and especially to the Institute, you know, what is the sustainable factor to that? Right. Obviously there has been substantial funding in the beginning to start everything from, from, uh, Mr. Allen, but you know, is that, is that something, is that kind of, you know, just to, to ask it, you know, straight, straightforward here, is that where your main source of funding is still coming from? So from, I don't know, from his foundation or whatever, or how, how, how do you guys basically sustainably um, go on about this? Yeah, so um, the, the late Paul Allen set aside uh, funding for us. First, he was funding it directly himself. Now it's part of his estate. And there's complex machinery to put together a foundation, but um, uh, in his will, uh, there's provided funding for AI2 um, indefinitely. Uh, and so uh, uh, the, the, as, as a nonprofit, so the nonprofit research arm, uh, I'm very excited that uh, reached the point where it's going to have some longevity. You know, they could, they could fire me. Uh, but uh, uh, the AI2 is going to uh, keep going. No, and that, that's a good feeling, right? Uh, presumably, if they fire me, it's because I've ceased to do a good job and it's time. Uh, you know, you want to create things that, uh, that have that kind of longevity. And that was uh, Paul Allen's focus as well, right? He created not just us, but the Allen Institute of Brain Science and Cell Science, right? I think uh, the Allen Institutes are a key part of his legacy. When we've wanted to do... Um, things and move even faster than envisioned, uh, we do have the ability to raise resources from the outside. 
So uh, in the case of the incubator, uh, it's funded to a certain degree, but we became eager and we saw a lot of potential both in the model and we are uniquely an AI first incubator, right? A lot of incubators think about the business questions. We start with the AI question. Where's the AI? Where's the AI edge? And then that's not enough, right? It's not enough to have a technology in search of a problem. So we want to connect that with strong business thinking, but we are uh, an AI only incubator, which is pretty unique. That combined with the growth that Seattle is experiencing, you know, relative to Silicon Valley and really anywhere in the world, Seattle has been incredibly vibrant with uh, companies uh, I, uh, achieving IPO, uh, seems like almost every other week in, uh, uh, in many areas. So, so that combination, Seattle and AI was very attractive and uh, a number of venture capitalists, Madrona Venture Group, which is a local company that invested in uh, Amazon. They're one of the earliest investors in Amazon and uh, many other very successful companies. And then uh, Sequoia from California and Kleiner Perkins, right? Companies that invested in Google and other, other key companies. They all came together uh, to create this fund. Uh, and uh, we're very appreciative of those resources, about $10 million. And we've been launching startups uh, as fast uh, as they can come out, and, uh, again, with some uh, exciting results. Yeah, obviously. And I mean, I, I think, you know, looking at the market right now and then the abundance of, of capital, uh, this is, uh, is probably not going to be stopped uh, <laughs> anytime short. But, um, you know, as you just said it, right, so uh, an AI first incubator. And um, so what, I, what I'm observing more and more on a global spectrum, and obviously, let's say, in, in, in the markets which are relevant and then basically have the developments and kind of the ecosystem when it comes to talent, et cetera, is that more and more I, I observe a specification when it comes to domains uh, and AI research. So basically, AI research happening at the intersection of a specific domain or vertical. So let's say uh, a specific health or industrial AI or uh, whatever it may be, um, basically because data being specific and requiring, you know, the domain knowledge uh, for it. Uh, I, so that, that is basically my observations where I see things heading more and more where you kind of you see these ecosystems being created around a specific um, vertical, et cetera. What, what is your perspective on that? Because I, I would uh, I would kind of judge that that you guys are tackling more from let's say from the computer science perspective broad AI challenges such as you know the problem if we look at the the older problems or the let's say the classical problems of vision perception etc right so these these type of challenges which are obviously things which can be applied in specific verticals but which are not directly vertical specific would you kind of share that uh, observation? Yes, uh, I think you're asking actually a very astute question because our technologies and our research, uh, as you point out, are what we would call horizontal, right? So NLP can be applied to many bodies of text, computer vision, uh, to lots of images, etc. And then uh, typically the way the business world works, uh, they look for an application in a particular vertical, whether it's manufacturing or healthcare or what have you, because of the domain knowledge, but also because of the customer uh, segmentation and so on. So for example, Exnor, which specialized in computer vision at the edge, meaning running algorithms very efficiently on a device like a phone or you know, even a doorbell, 
um, ha had to think through, okay, uh, that's very nice in general, but what are the specific uh, customers uh, to look at? Likewise, we have a company that we spun out called Lexion.ai, L-E-X-I-O-N.ai. And initially, and this is an NLP company, initially they looked at uh, smart intelligent Dropbox, right? What can we do with all the documents uh, that we have in Dropbox? Can uh, AI technology help us understand these? But very quickly, they became focused on legal texts. There's a lot of contracts. A lot of uh, corporations have contracts in, in Dropbox that are sitting there not very well analyzed, and their technology can automatically extract uh, key metadata like the term, uh, the insurance, uh, the parties involved, and so on and so on, and basically help uh, companies manage their, their contract basis. And so in all these cases, I'm kind of going through it very uh, superficially, there is this interplay that you're talking about where you start horizontal and then you go vertical, but then you also want to come back. One cool thing about all these companies is you have an initial vertical, but you have the potential to then go to another vertical and another one and uh, live up to the potential of the horizontal uh, technology. So uh, it's, it's an interplay. Mm. Yeah, so, but I mean, obviously you come across a lot of things um, and, and there's a lot of things and, and more and more companies being formed and, and obviously startups, you know, being buzzing and with, with all the capital being available, uh, re, re, research, you know, there's, there's more and more kind of, uh, I, that's what I see over, over here in Europe, but also in China, obviously, you know, more and more happening as well in academia, you know, different types of uh, uh, um, institutes, chairs being created for specific types of fields, etc. Uh, but from your perspective, what do you think right now, status quo, are some of, you know, some untapped opportunities within AI research that either be, you know, broader, you know, horizontal challenges or, let's say, um, vertically specific? Well, I, I think that uh, within AI research, most broadly, there are actually many challenges. One is uh, data efficiency. What do you do with uh, um, when, when you don't have as much data or as much labeled data? So we're really good at machine translation between English and French or English and German, but how about between uh, Swahili and Bulgarian uh, or some other combination where there isn't that much uh, of what's called the parallel corpora. There isn't that much uh, training data. Uh, there, there are many situations right where AI can make good predictions, but our models are opaque. We don't know why it made the predictions. The system isn't able to generate a, a high quality uh, explanation. So there continue to be very substantial uh, research challenges. And then, of course, if you go to a vertical, uh, it very quickly shows that up. So, for example, in uh, medical context, right, we can build very strong diagnostic systems. But it's very worrying if you get a diagnosis, but you don't have an explanation. So, you know, I sometimes talk in jest about, you know, going to a hospital that's run by an AI system. And they say, well, you know, Mr. Etzioni, we're wheeling you into surgery, into surgery now. We're going to remove your kidney. And I'm like, wait a minute, why? And they say, well, you know, the AI system said so. It's right 99.8% of the time. You know, surgery is in 15 minutes. And I'm like, stop. Somebody needs to explain to me. Uh, uh, right, and of course, actually generating a high quality explanation from the conclusions of a, you know, deep learned model is, is, uh, is very, very difficult. So, so often the domain 
uh, and the vertical applications. And what people want to see from the performance of the system uh, requires us to go further uh, in, uh, in the research uh, and to, to address uh, some of these challenges. Another big thing is the reliability of these systems. So we have systems nowadays uh, whether it's the famous GPT-3 uh, uh, language model that generates amazing documents or our uh, uh, systems that can do really good categorization of, uh, say, medical images and so on. But the systems are not always reliable. Sometimes they make uh, catastrophic errors. And catastrophic errors is exactly what you don't want if you want to build a reliable system. Imagine an AI system managing a nuclear power plant. 99% of the time does a great job, but every once in a while, well, there's a little meltdown, sorry, uh, right? That's not acceptable. So when we're dealing with high stakes domain, whether it's medicine or uh, nuclear power or uh, say uh, autonomous driving, we really need to build systems that are more reliable than that. And as we can see, for example, with autonomous driving, we're still struggling, right? Uh, despite the initial optimism, we don't yet have uh, systems driving autonomously, and it's because of the corner cases, right? Because of, of people's ability to uh, adapt, and actually also because of another huge area, which is uh, common sense. So we've started doing research on how do you uh, uh, put common sense into AI systems. Common sense is what you and I and every 10-year-old uh, have, just basic knowledge about the world, and of course AI systems don't have it. And AI systems without common sense can be quite dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. So there's some really important points that you mentioned. So definitely the impact, you know, the decision has of an AI system uh, on a human human being um, is, is, is definitely uh, an indicator for, um, the, you know, fast developments or quick developments uh, within the space. So obviously, if Netflix is recommending me a movie, which I actually don't like, or uh, Amazon recommending me a product which I actually am not interested in that has a, a, not a comparable uh, impact than you, you know a, a system basically recommending me a specific uh, diet that actually has an immediate uh, impact on my health or uh, you know as, as, uh, other examples there's plenty of them you know and and you know your 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 power plant example obviously is, is another one and there's a bunch of those and i think and, and and that is one side of things and the other side of things is which you mentioned at the beginning is uh, you know the amount of data so what is what is in a lot of cases we don't have that much data right i mean everybody knows that is in the field or has kind of you know tried to figure out what what is you know what is kind of the secret sauce behind of all of all of these all of these things is only obviously the annotation of, of data right and, and and data being labeled and in, in, in large large quantities and and therefore we have these uh you know use cases that, that that everybody knows from netflix or amazon or whatever those are um but uh you know when it comes to uh if you look at the health uh, health part right so uh, medicine you mentioned medicine you know obviously and, and that's what the, the past has been looking like, right? A lot of uh, things which are happening in a clinical setting, you know, the, those things are uh, expensive, right? The studies are expensive, you know, and, and gathering large amounts of data is, is difficult, right? What are the sample sizes? They're obviously not as comparable to, you know, what you're seeing in the kind of in the B2C space with, with the, you know, the GAFAs or whatever, right? So uh, it's, it's, it's definitely a fair point. And I think that's why those challenges are so bigger and the, the, the cycle of innovation there is just slower, um, you know? Yeah. So uh, definitely some very important points there. Um, let, let's maybe, uh, you know, 
we, we, we talked about hype and, 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 and uh, you know, reality a, a little bit in the beginning. I said, let's, let's touch that a little bit later. So you mentioned GPT-3 and, and um, obviously uh, there's, a, there's a lot of resources required um, uh, to, do, to do cutting edge research. Right, uh, resources, re resources which are put in by companies like, such as Google, um, OpenAI, but also um, Amazon, etc. Right, so in the, in the tech world, the, the the companies that everybody knows. You also said, well, we have good resources to 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 be, you know, to be around for a while. Um, but how do you think, kind of, if if we look at the corporate sector, right? So uh, I, I know I know a lot of people that are leading leading data science uh, initiatives or or are working on implementing projects, uh, AI projects within large corporates. So basically, in in, uh, in in the old economy kind of way, right? And so what, what reality and status quo basically looks like towards uh, towards that world, right? Is <laughs> it couldn't be further apart. <laughs> so. <laughs> How do you how do you see that transition or that transfer, basically, you know, between between that really cutting edge world and all the promises that that we seem to to hear about and 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 you know that are the pictures that are basically being painted, and actual reality in a consumer's or you know employee's work life. Wow. Well. Uh... I guess they they start uh, a lot of the time with uh, applications and popular uh, consumer technologies. If you think about uh, systems like Alexa or Siri, if you think about uh, you know various uh, Google products and Apple products like uh, photo tagging uh, and so on, right? All, those all have AI under the hood. You know the Google search engine and so on. So I think actually people are using AI more and more and they're not even aware of it. Uh, the Zillow uh, estimator that estimates what the value is of a home or an apartment to buy or to rent uh, has uh, data science and AI under the hood. I think when you go to uh, industries that are a little bit slower to adapt, maybe uh, housing construction or when one has to be more careful, right? Because right, you're building a house and you make a mistake, it's uh, as you pointed out earlier, right, it's uh, a lot harder to undo than a Netflix uh, recommendation. So that obviously is a slower movement and it requires um, more kind of cultural change and infusion of talent. But we've seen, you know, increased use of robotics in uh, manufacturing and in, in medicine. So I, I do think uh, there's that famous line the future is here, it's just not widely distributed yet. So I think that um, the AI future is getting more widely distributed. And at the same time, we have to remember, right, that sometimes people get overexcited, right, just because it's a shiny new technology. Uh, there are problems that can be solved with simple models, right? You don't need uh, deep learning or, you know, without AI or even data science in, in the first place. There can be heuristic solutions. So one uh, does need to uh, clear, there's no substitute for clear business thinking about the return on investment. Maybe kind of as a last la last question for uh, for today, uh, I, <laughs> I, I like to ask that question. I oftentimes, I oftentimes see people struggle with that, but uh, you know, to, to, to break it down or kind of, you know, to, to, to think about a singular thing. So if I ask, 
basketball person always to break something down to like you know their top three or you know like one one thing that they that they could say about something you know it always it always comes down you know hard for people to to actually do that because there's so many things that that, that one has you know an information overflow uh, but if we if we think about the future right i mean obviously it's a, it's a specific um specific times right now you know with with COVID and everything but from your perspective and and from the things that you're dealing with right and and the AI space how do you view the future kind of you know post-pandemic and and what are some things that you are excited about um, that you think are going to happen or that you basically see developing and it could be anything I am very excited about the potential of technologies in uh, speech speech understanding speech generation natural language processing, computer vision, all these technologies finding much broader application in places like uh, healthcare, manufacturing, construction, where they've really, we've only seen the, uh, the tip of the iceberg. That's from an application point of view uh, in industry. I think also that the tools uh, to, to use these technologies are gonna get much better, right? It's still the case that using AI in a particular context is surprisingly a, complex craft, almost a dark art. And I think that the same way that we develop standardized databases and compilers, we need better AI technology that doesn't require uh, an incredible specialist with years and years of experience to use it. And then lastly, on, on the research front, again, our AI is still what's called narrow AI. I like to talk about these AI savants. They're uh, very powerful, but they're very narrow, like a scalpel, right? A very thin and sharp instrument. And human intelligence is very broad and very resilient and can transfer ideas from one realm to another via analogy. And when we come to a new uh, field, we bring in all kinds of ideas and uh, concepts and heuristics from another field. And these are all things that uh, AI isn't very good at yet, but I think that will change over the future. So uh, my summary is I think that uh, there's a lot of room for advancement, but I do wanna end, but with a cautionary note, I'm obviously an AI optimist, but we do have to be cognizant of all the challenges, the, the threats to privacy, uh, potential for job displacement, uh, potential for unfairness because of bias. So we haven't talked much about that, but those are very real issues that people in the field uh, are thinking about and should be thinking about even more. Yeah, it's a great ending. Um, thanks, Oren. Thanks for touching on that, uh, the last one. That's uh, definitely an important one. It was a really great speaking to you. Thanks for being on the show. Same here. Thanks for the invitation. I look forward to hearing it when it comes out.